Uh, we are in the midst of a series that's a little bit of a non-traditional series on Advent, and we are looking at the, the five audacious, audacious uh, women in the line of Jesus. And um, I think that one of the things that I've, I've uh, recognized is that when the Bible does something that you don't expect, when it speaks outside of its context and above its context and does something that no one would expect, that's a really important time to listen. And so when these five women are included in the genealogy of Jesus, it should spark our attention. It should shock us because it was not done. Women were not included in genealogy. So why would the gospel writers include them in their story of Jesus? Well, I think we're going to get to that a little bit today, and we're getting at that these uh, four or five weeks that we're covering these different women. But I want to give you a little context and then pray, uh, and just so you know where Ruth is at in the story of the Bible. Ruth was uh, at the tail end of the time of the judges. And the judges, if you've read Judges, is a notoriously dark period in the time of, of Israel. It's nothing like Moses and Joshua where there's all sorts of, of, of the glory of God on display. But the Judges is a period of time where this is the, the claim of Judges 2.10. It says that people neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. God raised up these judges to rescue them from the trouble that they had brought upon themselves and lead them back to Yahweh. But the biblical writers tell us that the people habitually did what was right in their own eyes which is just another way of saying they turned their backs on God. So this is the context with which the, the uh, story in the book of Ruth is written. Let's pray. God, we ask today that through uh, this ancient story that we would better understand who you are um, and, and what you care about. We ask that your Holy Spirit, even right now, would uh, help us to, to listen and not just to be hearers of the word, but then doers of the word. So God, would you be with us even right now as we study this text? So I got the tough uh, person to, to, to preach on because it's four chapters of narrative. So I don't know how to cover this quickly. I definitely can't go verse by verse. I can't read a large chunk of it. It just would take up too much of our time. So you're going to have to trust me in the summary of Ruth. And you can uh, you know, check me later. Re read it later. Read the whole thing and make sure that I've got it right. But I want to give you uh, what is going on in this story. It starts with Naomi. Um, and it begins with her and her family and an incredible famine that hits the land of Israel, in particular Bethlehem. So this family lives in Bethlehem, which, is, which, which means house of bread. And yet in the house of bread, there's this massive famine. And it's hard for us, I think, to not just bypass that, isn't it? We who have maybe missed a meal or two in our lives here or there, or maybe have been hungry at times, but none of us, at least as far as I know, have ever experienced a true famine. So grave and so significant in your life that you had to leave everything that you had behind in order to go to a foreign land with foreign gods, with foreign culture, with foreign language, where, there was, where you could try to find food. So this was a significant decision. The despair and the difficulty that they were having in Israel was so drastic that they picked up and left with their family, left their friends, like I said, left their culture, their safety, 
and their faith community to go to Moab. And they were outsiders. I mean, many of us probably know people or, or even are immigrants. And coming to this country is, uh, is, is very brave and extremely scary. You're showing up to a place that you don't know if you're going to be accepted, where you're going to have an accent, where you're going to, to believe different things and think different things and have different customs. And you have to walk into this new place and create a, a new life for yourself. Beyond just being outsiders and experiencing a famine and, and, and being immigrants to this new nation, Elimelech and, and, her, and Naomi and their family come to this country and they experience grave tragedy when they're there. Elimelech dies almost immediately as they are there. And even though Naomi has two sons, the loss of this figure in their family would be significant. We see that happening uh, very quickly because the, 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 the sons that, that she has immediately choose to marry Moabite women. Now, the tradition in that time period was that the, the head of the household, which had been Elimelech, he would have chosen spouses for, for his sons. And he most likely would have chosen uh, Israelites, not Moabites. He, he most likely would have bargained with the other head of the household of whoever he was hoping to marry his sons off to, uh, and they would share land and uh, uh, you know, cattle and all sorts of things. And this would and, and continue to enrich them and provide for them and their family. But because Elimelech has passed away, these sons choose Moabite women, and most likely he, they chose lower-class Moabite women because there's no hint of uh, an arranged marriage where they would receive certain aspects of the other person's uh, care and help. Now, this may seem very foreign and very odd and even wrong, uh, but this is just what happened. The, the Bible is just explaining the reality of that world at that time. And so we have to recognize how difficult and how daunting this would have been for Naomi and her family. So he marries them, they, they get married to these Moabite women, and then soon after, both of the sons, Malon and Kilion, pass away as well. This is significant. Three women with no husbands in the ancient Near East, was asking for slavery, for prostitution, for extreme poverty, for a life filled with fear and anxiety and most likely abuse and being taken advantage of. Before even the death of the sons, what, what we, we see is that not only uh, did, did they uh, experience death of their sons eventually, but before that, they experienced 10 years of barrenness. So for 10 years, Ruth and Orpah could not conceive of a child. And this barrenness was also incredibly catastrophic for the family because if they had had a son they still would have had a chance in their context. And you start to ask your question after hearing about the barrenness, the death of the husband, the death of the sons, the moving from their context, the famine, the, the being outsiders, the, the loss of everything that would have made them like really Jewish in their 
context and space, you start to ask the question, where is God? Don't you? Where was God? Where was God looking after them? Why were they going through these challenges? Why were they going through these difficulties? You can see it in Naomi's response. Can you not? She says basically to her daughter's laws, you just go back to your households, go back to your country, and you can, you can find a new husband, you can find a new way, and, and go make a way for yourselves. But essentially, God has forgotten me. She no longer is looking for God to bless her, and she lays her misery at Yahweh's feet. Essentially, the language she talks about is God has made her bitter. God has become her enemy. He has raised his hand against her, emptying her of everything she ever held dear. So some of us, that language may make us feel very uncomfortable. But this is what I love about the scriptures, is they are incredibly honest. They don't try to sugarcoat God. They don't try to explain everything away. We tend to do that, don't we? When bad things are happening, uh, we would probably never go after God like that. We would say our, our circumstances or someone else did this to me or, or, or we would try to like make it maybe seem like it's not so bad or that we have full confidence even deep inside that we don't have confidence in God. See, the Bible allows us permission to voice the thoughts and questions we are fighting so desperately to suppress. And we don't have to pretend. We don't have to act like everything's okay. We don't have to, uh, you know, put a, a bow on everything. Eugene Peterson uh, talks about this candidness of the scriptures. He says, no literature is more realistic and honest in facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. On every page of the Bible, there is a recognition that faith encounters trouble. And the thing that's even more frustrating at times in the, the scripture is that God does not defend himself. <laughs> he kind of is okay with the questions. And with allowing them to wait, allowing them to, to wait and see, allow them to, to deal with their frustration. They don't always get answers. There's not a, 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 you know, a three-step process about how to get out of this or a three-step process of, of answers that's going to explain why all this bad stuff happened to Naomi. And I think that Christians, we often are great pretenders. Our, our culture is so scared and afraid of any sort of suffering, that when we experience it, we feel like we have to defend God. We have to explain God. We have to put a bow on it, try to cover it up. Because we want to act like the Christian life always works and is easy, and it doesn't always feel that way, and it certainly isn't that way. So this is where we're, we're left at the beginning of Ruth. Naomi with her two daughter-in-laws, begging them to go away because God has certainly forsaken them. But Ruth refuses. And this is probably the most pivotal statement in all of the book. Ruth 1, 16 through 16-17 says this. She says, Where you go, I will go. 
And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What a statement. Certainly a statement of loyalty to her mother-in-law, who, as we'll see later on in the text, doesn't really seem like she's that enthralled with Ruth. (laughs) In fact, she goes back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, and says, I have no one. This is what she announces to everybody. God's taken everyone. And Ruth's got to be thinking, well, I'm here. Like, I, I, I was, remember me? You know, I'm the one that said that I would be with you forever and um, until I die. And she, she doesn't seem to be having it. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why did Ruth choose to stay? As I said, I don't think that she and Naomi necessarily had this close-knit relationship. She had to know how difficult life was going to be. And though she was loyal and probably cared about Naomi, certainly she would recognize the death sentence she was walking into. But almost all the commentators and all the people say there's something deeper going on here than just what meets the eye. That, That Ruth is not just choosing Naomi, but she's choosing Yahweh. She's choosing God. Maybe if you just casually read it, you just think, well, she just must really care about Naomi. But Ruth is embracing Naomi's God. That's why she says, your God will be my God. See, Ruth has discovered somehow in her her way of being part of this family for a period of time that Yahweh is the one true God and that she might lose the world, but she has, in a New Testament language, saved her soul. This is a miraculous and incredible moment, redirecting of the human heart of Ruth that only God can do. And so we see her choosing God. I think there's something that's significant that comes as an application to this point. Is that God often, in the scriptures, chooses the most unlikely people, but those with the greatest faith, to pave the way for the Messiah. As I said before, when we see uh, the text break from its norm, when we see something that's out of the ordinary for its context and culture, we're supposed to really pay attention. And in this situation, we have a story about a woman, not a man. We have a story about a Moabite, not an Israelite. We have a story about someone that's impoverished, not the rich. And what we find is this this incredible example about how the kingdom of God truly comes. And that the Messiah comes not just through a male lineage, but women as well. See, the, the Bible, from what I can tell, is the only book in the ancient Near East that was written that's written from the side of the vulnerable and not the powerful. Is written from the side of the losers in society's view, not the winners. And so we see a constant usurping of power, a constant usurping of wealth, a constant usurping of any sort of what's normal, what's supposed to happen in this particular way. Instead, we have a story of Ruth the Moabite, 
who sees God when no one else sees God, who trusts in God amidst incredible suffering. And this declares to us what we've been trying to to declare this, this whole series, is that God is systematically breaking down this view of patriarchy throughout the Old Testament. Some people will say, well, that's not true. There's still all sorts of things written in the Old Testament. But that's to not understand how radical it is that Ruth's story is even included. How out of the ordinary, how unique it is that they would be included in this space in the scriptures. See, the Bible has often been taken as a text that suppresses women, that oppresses women, that gives license to do that. But when, in fact, God makes it painstakingly clear that women are of equal value in this patriarchal society in a way that's simply unheard of at the time. God's uniqueness is that women are to be at the forefront of of the faith. God not only affirms his love for his daughters in a radical and earth-shaking ways, he does so with, within a culture that would refuse it and unapologetically relegated women to second-class status. God casts a vision of breathtaking proportions for how his kingdom is moving forward through the efforts of women. And so this story is one of Ruth against all the odds, bringing about God's will and God's way and ultimately bringing about the Messiah. The second thing that we see um, is that she chose God. And the second thing that we see as we, we go through the passage is that God does eventually provide. So they go back to Bethlehem and to Israel and they, um, they're hungry again. I mean, they had no provision. They have no way. They have nothing that's going to really um, help them along their, their path. And so they do what they, they could do. And Ruth takes off and she goes to the fields. And as the gleaning takes place in the field, as they, they're harvesting the grain, she is left with the other uh, impoverished people to pick up the scraps. This was the only way that they could provide food for their family. And this may seem like such an extreme thing, like that a woman and men would have to essentially provide themselves with the scraps left over. But I think what we'll find is, that, and we would say, what kind of culture is this that takes care of their people like that? But this happens even in the United States today. You know that in our country today, roughly... uh, 20% of the migrant workers in our our country are women, which works out to be about 630,000 migrant workers. This is just women across the U.S. And you know how much money they make for their work? On average, about $11,000 a year. Undocumented immigrant women are among the most vulnerable workers in the United States and are often filled with the most physically and mentally challenging jobs in our society. They are routinely abused it's really hard to figure out exactly how much they're abused because a lot of women won't, won't admit it. But most people estimate between 75 to 90% of women indicate that they have been sexually abused as migrant workers in our country today. And so Ruth in the, in the, <laughs> takes the, the risk and goes knowing that she's putting her life in danger, knowing that this is the only way to survive. 
And even though there are rules in place for these gleaners, for these people, we didn't know. We just heard that the judge's you know, context was that no one was really following God. So who knew if the owner of this field would actually leave what's left, would not require some sort of payback for what he was providing. So she stretches the limit because she's a bold woman and she gleans more than she should be gleaning. And then eventually asks the question essentially to Boaz and Boaz says, yeah, you can like allow her to have, uh, you know, even more. Allow her to be part of the process before the scraps are left. Let her choose what she needs to survive. So God provides for her in these insignificant ways. And as the narrative goes for, forward, we find that God continues to provide for her because she takes great steps of faith. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 are the story of Ruth essentially asking Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer. That he's the next one in line, she believes, in order to provide uh, you know, safety and shelter and provision for her family, to provide her uh, a son. So she, at great cost to herself and great risk, she goes to Boaz and presents herself before him to be redeemed to be helped in the midst of her difficulty. And this may make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And so a lot of times what people say is like they pretend this to be like a love story. (laughs) And I don't really think that's what it is. I don't think Ruth is all fallen for this really strong and powerful Boaz. She's just looking to survive. And Boaz is probably not in love with Ruth, but he is the one that sees what God has commanded him to do. And he takes that responsibility seriously. Now maybe they eventually fell in love with one another. But I think the reality is most likely Boaz is saying and the response of the other kinsman redeemer, the other possible one, is no, I can't take her because I would have to divide up my inheritance. I would have to divide up my wealth amongst more than one family. And Boaz is saying, no, I, I will do that. I'm willing to give that to you, Ruth and Naomi, to provide. And so the second is that God... Uh, point is that God provides. And I just want to make uh, this clear beyond just like in this situation, how God provided for people on the margins in the Old Testament. Because sometimes we don't see how God is providing, not just in the miraculous or in the stories like this or happenstance, but through the law or through different things that are happening. And so I think what we can see is that God cares about the powerless in this passage. In a story that raises questions about God's faithfulness, God shows up. God built a system and ways to protect the powerless in Israel's society. I just told you about the gleaning law. And if that was followed correctly, it should have provided for those people that were on the margins and had very little. Second, the way he did the sacrificial system, he allowed people with different income to offer different sacrifices, provide differently for their relationship with God. The third thing we see in uh, the scripture is this year of jubilee. Now, we don't know if it actually was ever followed. It doesn't mean that God didn't, didn't say that it should be followed. And this was the law that every 50 years, no matter how much trouble or how much debt you got into, the year of Jubilee would be returning land, returning um, wealth back to those people that were indebted. It was a, essentially a fresh start for each generation or two in order to have to not be stuck in system, systemic poverty year after year after year. Another way that we see God uh, caring about the marginalized 
and those that are powerless. It's through the prophets. God raises up prophets to give warnings and call people towards repentance whenever they're getting far off. Psalm 82, 3 through 4 says this, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so we see a God that provides and we see a God that cares about those that are powerless in their midst. This is the story of Ruth. This brave and gutsy and faithful woman who steps out in faith trusting that God would provide and he does. And the last thing I would say as an application today is, um, is this, I think sometimes we say, okay, well, so, so what? Like, what does this mean for us, right? We hear this amazing story. We hear about the God that provides. We see how he provides this kinsman redeemer as Ruth steps out in faith and trusts God to provide. I think there's a few applications. The first is this. In light of how the Bible is written for the vulnerable and not the powerful, for the poor and not the rich, for women and not men, right, in these stories, how does that impact the way that we live our lives? I think God might be saying to us today, whatever power and whatever privilege you have to expand your table to those that don't belong, to those that aren't traditionally welcomed in, to those that are outsiders, and choose to love them to hand over your power and privilege so that they might thrive and live. And the second thing is that God is asking in the midst of your trials and pain not to not ask him hard and difficult questions. Not that we don't sometimes experience bitterness and anger and frustration. But even in this realness of life and the reality of our broken world, to trust in him. To trust that he is Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. And even if we can't see the answers or we can't see the end of the story, we don't know what's coming. To trust in his promises. To trust that he's trustworthy and true. In all of these stories of the women in the line of Jesus, and we could look at the stories of men in the line of Jesus, what we, we often will see is we see what's happening in the midst right then and there and how God provides, but it's often pointing forward to a greater picture of how God would, would ultimately provide in the person of Jesus. And I think that we can see the person of Jesus in the examples of both Ruth and Boaz in this, in this, in this uh, book. We can see the example of how Ruth clings to her mother-in-law at great cost to herself. And how Jesus, though he was equal with God, gave up equality with God and came as a servant, as a baby, we can see it in the story of Boaz, who did not, was not, you know, the culture wouldn't have required him to do anything. And yet here's a man who knew the scriptures and amidst a faithless generation was faithful to God. And he's called this kinsman redeemer because this idea of redeeming that line, he redeems the line of Naomi and Ruth. 
In the same way, we have this picture of Christ who comes, who gives up his life for us so that we might be redeemed, so that our line might be restored, so that we can be part of his family, his sons and daughters, and share his inheritance. So in light of Ruth, will we be a faithful people? Will we extend our our table? Will we trust in God even when it's hard?